You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Mark Brickeroff, who is the president of Fusion Design, which is a full-service product development company located in Silicon Valley. Founded in 1990, they have worked with a variety of clients from startups to small companies to Fortune 100 corporations with engineering services. Mark's specialties include product development, consultant, turnkey solutions, industrial design, mechanical packaging, finite element analysis, thermal analysis, and more. On today's show, we talk about what are soft batteries, elastic wiring, limitless, multi-touch force. What about 5G technology and how that's going to impact and play a part in wearables? And what is the typical design process when you are building a product? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Mark, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, you've been in the Valley for 20, 30 years and had this amazing career. I mean, we just talked about rebuilding a 50-year-old car off air, of course, and some of the, your adventures. But before we dive into the questions, can you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about your background up until this point? So I've been here in the Valley for a very long time. And by the way, thanks for having me today. Pleasure to be here. I started in the Valley at about 1983 after going to college in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo as a mechanical engineer. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at Hewlett Packard back then in Santa Clara. They had a division that did instruments and laser interferometers. And I was one of the manufacturing engineers on those programs there. So that was the beginning of my career in the Valley. Before that, I was always a curious individual. I grew up in Northern California and always tinkering with things. So I think a little previous activity that spurred my inspiration for what I do today was at age seven, I was a slot car enthusiast and I enjoyed playing with them a lot, building tracks, racing them around. And I wanted to make sure that my car was the fastest one. So I needed more power. Slot cars, obviously, are little DC cars that race around tracks for those of you who may not be familiar with it. So I decided I need more power. So I plugged it into the wall socket. That sucker spun really fast for about half a second and then smoked. And it didn't blow the fuse, but then I thought about it. I said, God, that, that was crazy, but fun. I said, Dad, what kind of a career does this kind of thing? And he said, well, Mark, watching you, I think it's mechanical engineering. So my entire career started at that one point and all the way to now, it's been mechanical engineering all the way. In the beginning, it was as a worker for big companies like HP and Amdahl. And now it's as a business owner, which is Fusion Design today. I've been doing that for 30 years myself. So Now your company today, you're working with startups to Fortune 100 companies. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing working with these companies and how is it different working with a startup and working with a huge conglomerate? The startups are, are very interesting in that usually they're entrepreneurs, one, two, three, four, five people, sometimes more, but most of the time it's that small. They're usually very knowledgeable in one area and maybe not so knowledgeable in many others like business in some cases or marketing or sales or manufacturing. So they come with a great idea and a light bulb over their head and don't know the steps to go forward. 
the way we deal with them is more of an educational approach. I've done a bunch of videos. You can see them on our website in this regard because I get questions that are repeating very often. How do I do this? How do I do that? How's the world handle these things? I did videos with the help of my son, put them on our website so you can see them. There's probably 15 different videos there on how to do development. And those are for the entrepreneurs, the startups. Then there's a mid-range client of ours who tends to have a lot of the infrastructure. They've done it before. They're very well funded. They're innovating in an area, maybe like telecom, creating 5G systems, which are a big part of our future. They know what they want and need us to execute on a very small piece of a big program. In the case of a, an entrepreneur or a small startup, they happen to need almost everything. So we educate and connect them with those resources and fill a lot of those gaps ourselves. In the case of the mid-range company, we see their gaps very specifically and they'll write up a statement of work for us, which is a rare thing with an entrepreneur. We follow that statement of work and address their needs as quickly and accurately as we can. And then hopefully they hire us again in the future. And that happens often. The Fortune 100 companies are yet different again. They have very large bureaucracies and they have gateways for small businesses like mine to get through before you can get work there. And without naming too many big companies, a number of them, once you get through what I call the gauntlet, their master service agreement requirements, that's the term often used. There's other names for it. Then you get on their approved list. Their pursuit of you is through internal means. So you get into their internal network. They look for that resource internally. They know who the approved vendors are. And it shortens their delivery time for a service or a product they might procure. It's quite different. Okay, I guess going back a little bit further, can you talk a little bit about your company, what it actually does? Because I think there's a little gap there between we work with all these companies and this is actually what we do for these companies. Great question. Should have covered that sooner. As a mechanical engineering company, we do mostly product designs and equipment designs. Now, what's that mean? It could mean that we create an x-ray cancer therapy machine for a very large company that does that. They would create core technology and we would create all the components around it. For example, covers, electronic enclosures, cable designs, mechanisms, things that go like that. We do the industrial design, which is the aesthetics, look, feel, image, ergonomics, usability. Partners who do software and hardware, meaning electronic hardware. We do the mechanical hardware. Our resource team, there's 10 of us in my company, and there's up to 10 contractors work with us all the time. And so what we do is we figure out the gaps a customer has, and then we fill them with talented resources to meet their needs. To do that, we have a shop that makes things. We have a machine shop. We have a 3D printing room. Between those two, we create things that didn't exist before, 100 times a year at maximum. So far, we've done way over 1,400 projects, and it's been a busy life just at Fusion. And our customers range, like we talked about, from one individual all the way up to Fortune 100 companies. The way it works is it's all through the network. We really don't have a billboard out on 237 or anything like that. Everything exists as a relationship from one person to the next. I hate to say it, but it's kind of like the virus spreading right? It spreads by close contact. Well, I think business actually spreads the same way. Fortunately, business is a good thing where the virus obviously isn't. Most of our audience 
are those entrepreneurs out there and the VCs that are working with them? What advice do you have for me working to build a custom product while I'm working with an equipment design company? We do both equipment and product. If your device or design or interests is a product, we would take a certain approach there. If it's a machine, it's a different approach. Typically with a product, you make a lot of them. A machine, you make a few of them. You still make a lot, but usually it's a lot less. And I think one of the biggest, there's like three or four challenges I see with entrepreneurs and how they deal with product development. Usually they have a great idea. Maybe they've made a proof of concept, a simple version of whatever they're doing, or maybe they haven't. My first advice is I like to wear two hats, pretending I'm an entrepreneur and a competitor to the entrepreneur. Put those two hats on it different times. So if you're the entrepreneur, you're inventing something new and really cool. If you're the competitor, you want to say, well, I want to steal that idea and I want to make it for myself, right? So you want to wear both hats. The first one, the hat I like to wear is who else out there already has a product like this? Can I find it? Is it on Amazon? Is it in the U.S. patent database? Where can I find it? I look really hard to find the product. And I actually honestly try to kill my idea. It's hard to do that, especially for an entrepreneur, because they tend to have a narrow view of what their idea is and they run really fast. I'm one of them. I get it. If you look at the marketplace and don't find what you're doing, nobody has it and it still has high value. I do a provisional or I recommend a provisional patent. That locks your date and your idea into a, the U.S. database. That's the first step. Then I try more prototypes, lots of prototypes. You'd be surprised what you can make with things you buy at Home Depot or Fry's Electronics. And it usually is quite ugly, not worthy of production, but it proves a principle. I promote trying it, whatever it is. We've done things like exercise devices, small electronic mechanisms that integrate with each other. So I always believe in buying what's close and modifying it to do what you want to do. And then try it on the marketplace, on the people that you trust and see if it makes sense end game. And then ask them, what would you pay for something like this? You can see there's a lot of upfront work here before the actual hard development occurs because it's an expensive task. So I always promote being very, very sure. In fact, if you can make a partnership with the marketing entity or the sales entity ahead of time before you even develop it, that way, once you've done your product, it's like a roller coaster. It rolls right into the next phase of development in a way that's already arranged. And there are ways to do that. Most of the time, people have an idea, they come and they develop it, but they don't have an end game for it. So now it's really cool. It's done. They have a manufacturer, but they have no way to sell it. Well, it's a great idea. It's not that great if it can't get to market. The market doesn't even know it's there. Think of the whole picture. And oftentimes, entrepreneurs have a lot of trouble with that because they tend to focus on what's right in front of them. What's my next goal? They don't look at the big picture. So I think my advice is look at the big picture, make a roadmap for yourself with others or on your own, march to that and recognize there'll be bumps along the way that you'll need to deal with. That's the best way to start. So I start with requirements document. Once you've got through all this, does the world have it? Do they want it? What do I need as a company to help you, for example? That's a requirements document. And it's called a PRD in the classic sense, product requirements document. 
And that's driven by an MRD. Sorry about all the acronyms here. Marketing requirements document is one that is directly from your research. You've done a product, you've tried it, you've shown it to others, you've watched them use it in a way that is what you thought it was or absolutely not the way you thought it would be used. Once you've done that, you understand the basic needs. Then you convert that to the PRD and it is more engineering centric. So if the device has to move this far, that far to do a certain task, you would say how far? A foot, two feet, thousand feet, whatever it is. It needs to fly over the building 12 times, whatever it is. Numbers. So the PRD is a numbers game. Engineers love numbers. If you haven't heard that before, you just heard it now. Anyway, they love numbers because it gives them a target they can meet. Engineers love the science of things. And the science is based on numbers, things that actually the world wants in a numerical way. For us to be good engineers, we need good numbers. The product, tearing it apart from that competitor's view. How does one go about doing that? Do patent lawyers get involved in this at all? What does that process conversation look like? It usually starts with an understanding of where the person comes from. I try to understand their career and what they've done to date. And if they're engineers already, then I address it from an engineer's point of view. If they're not, I look at another point of view. We've had hairdressers come in and want to do things for their world. And there's a lot of innovation opportunities in that space. I have to speak in the terms of the hairdresser. Obviously, not so great for me. I don't have a lot of hair. It doesn't work so well. But the, the idea is to start where they are, like a tutor. The best tutors understand the knowledge level or depth of knowledge in a certain category of their, those they're tutoring. We do the same. To first of all, understand where they are. Take them to a point where they need to be verbally. Make a checklist. We often create a list from where they are today to where they need to be, even before they can start with us. Marketing. You talked about marketing. That's a hard one. Marketing people, in my view, they are looking for the next greatest product that almost sells itself because it's the least amount of work for them. I get it. I'd want to do the same thing. Developing relationships with usually through friends that are connected to those that are other trusted friends, if not directly in the marketing space, find them. Find those who've sold products in Walmart or Home Depot or wherever your target marketplace is. Find those folks. Talk to them about what your product is in general. You'll need a non-disclosure. I always promote that. There's lots of them online. I think you could find plenty there. Get one that you're happy with and then get your provisional patent in place. Start looking for a marketing resource. Sometimes marketing comes with a company too. There's many ways to place a product in the world. It's one, you could be a manufacturer and sell it yourself. You could license it to someone else or some combination of the two. And I always ask that up front because the output of our efforts change dramatically if you're just trying to sell an idea. We'll do something that looks great, but it hasn't had all the details wrung out yet because it costs a lot of money to do that. So we'll do something that works, but it's done in a rather quick way to be efficient for them to get to selling their idea. Now, if they're going to go to market, then we do a lot more work on all the details. If it's a plastic enclosure, for example, which we've done hundreds of, then all the little details are figured out what it looks like, how it works from the inside and the outside, what electronics go in it, how the heating works. Is there a power supply? Is there a battery? Does it mount in the body? Does it live on a bench? I mean, all these things are thought about. 
in grand detail. There's different paths. So choosing a path first and getting a marketing and or sales entity on your team is great. And they could be advisors. It could be people you pay. There's brokers out there. There's a lot of options. So if you're an entrepreneur looking to raise funds, are you looking for that prototype that you're just selling the idea or are you looking for that finished product that can go to market? I think it depends on the funding entity. Usually those that fund programs are looking for an exit strategy. Figuring out what an exit strategy is for that funding entity or person is a big part of the picture. For example, if you're in a space that hasn't ever produced volume components, products, and things like that, I always promote selling the idea. The output of that for getting money would be a really cool prototype, one that works beautifully, looks great, does everything you want, but it's not ready for showtime yet. So you create this really cool prototype and you take it with you with a presentation about the numbers, the finance, the business plan, the marketing plan. That's how you get funding, in my opinion. Unless you have a close, rich friend who trusts you emphatically, they exist. They will just fund you, say, go. We get jobs that way. How often does someone come to you and say, this is my idea for the product. I'm going to raise VC funding. And then you just basically tell them this idea is not going to work. It's not doable. It's not buildable. It's not just a dream crusher, I guess. (laughs) The bearer of bad news. I'm not that guy. No. As an engineer and a business owner, I can tell you whether the engineering makes sense or the product can be reproduced in the volume you desire. I can't always tell you if the world will accept it. That's marketing and sales entity, but mostly marketing in my opinion. Is an idea good or bad? I can tell you from an engineering point of view, it's going to break. It won't work. It won't fly. It won't do what you want. We get those occasionally. I usually say it with questions. If this happens, what will your device do? Have you tried it yet? And usually I ask them to try it because usually people can prove their product's worth or capability by quick prototypes. The Fry's Electronics, Home Depot, componentry thrown together or some other device they took apart, modified to do something else. They try it and then they either prove themselves right or prove themselves wrong, but they do it quickly so they can move on and do other great ideas if it isn't a good one. I try to help them prove it to themselves. Rather than tell them it's a terrible idea because I hate squelching innovation, I try to help them decide whether it's a value or not. When you're working with these early stage companies and they give you a design, do you ever talk to them about the manufacturer and the next steps for it? Say the prototype is built, but then they need that manufacturer overseas, those introductions. How does that conversation continue after the first conversation with you? So you know quite a bit to even ask that question, Sean. Uh, We do a couple things. First of all, we have relationships with global companies, both onshore, offshore, nearshore, next door, all over the place. And you can't do this many projects and not have those, at least some relationships. The other thing we have is I have a cabinet full of products that we've done before. And I tend to show ones that have similar technologies in them to theirs. Sometimes it's I have a plastic enclosure with a rubber overmold, a rubber coating. 
that rubber coating is very desirable in a certain industry. So I'll go pull three or four of those out of the cabinet, put them on the table and say, this is the part you'd mold. It's done in one mold. This is the rubber coating. It's done in a family or a friend mold, the next mold. And here's how they put together. I even have a demo mold in my office that you can actuate by hand. You can see how the little ejectors work, where the plastic flows in and all that other stuff. That is the educational piece. There's a lot of opportunities there. And if they know, already know this stuff, then I'll recommend vendors directly. They can talk to them. And my favorite vendors, should anyone ask, and they often do, are ones, if they're foreign, they have a local engineering presence. Someone I can call, invite in, well, now maybe just call. Someone I can invite in to come and chat about what their services are, chat with the client. That works out really well because they can interpret the need and translate it into the distance and or language barriers that might exist with the fabrication site. You had mentioned when someone comes in with an idea, you might say from an engineer's point, this works, this doesn't work. Has any investor's angel or venture capitalist come in and go, I invested in this product. Will it work? Will it not work? So it's like a vetting, not directly. We have done something similar. We call them teardowns. I don't know if you've heard of teardowns. Teardowns are the disassembly of a competitive product and or many of them. You study how they work. You look at them from a manufacturing point of view. You actually quote them. You take every part out and you say, oh, this is a plastic part. It's molded in a tool that probably costs this much. Each part, the volume is 40000 a month. So the material cost is this. So, and there's plus some assembly labor and inspection. Okay, this percentage, that's the price of that part. Maybe there's 50 parts in it. You add all those up together and you create a bill of materials that's costed. So that's a task we've done many, many times. So it's called product teardowns. That's the closest we get to looking at how things work and whether they work well or not. And we've seen some really bad products too. Sometimes we do teardowns that we can't believe that they were built a certain way and how they got through to the marketplace is amazing to us. And then we see other products and I could speak names, but I probably shouldn't. Other products that are so well built. It's like, man, I love this. And we go out and buy them ourselves because we know how well that they're made. That's very interesting. Say instead of a, an engineer coming to you saying, we've built this product. If more of the financial guy came to you and said, I'd like to do the projections for this company, for investors, this is our build of materials and that. Do you ever sit down with the numbers guy and kind of project what things would look like, how much money they should try to raise if they want to take this product to market or have conversations like that? We do, but we're only a piece of that program. We have a relationship with a local entity that has many other companies within it that fill out that type of request. Because there are many skill sets that go into projecting the needs for a company. I like to call it the roadmap. You study the roadmap and you assign resources and those resources can be human resources or just general capitalization that, that goes with it. If you can map those out with the help of, usually it's four or five experts. I'm in the mechanical design space and the prototype space, but I'm not in the volume production space as much as someone else is. I mean, I'm there, but not every day. Another participant would be someone who lives in that space, adds their financial projections to the program as a whole. 
typically my view is people just pick a number out of the air and then go ask for it. Honestly, I think the best way to do it is to talk to the experts. You may end up doubling it because there's one thing that really trips up a program. I call it creeping elegance. Typically is something that people say, here's what the market wants. I want to do this. As they get into it, it's like, oh, we could have that other feature. Oh, and this one and that one and this one. And the later they do that in the game, the more costs it adds to the budget. Projecting for iteration is important, but can be futile if there's infinite iterations. So then how many iterations should someone plan for a new product and how many tests in the market, alpha test, beta test, or however you like to call it, should they try to do before that mass push to market? The answer, I hate to say, is it depends. Depends on the market. There are many different markets. In some cases, if it's highly human interactive, it's a lot of iterations. It might be 20, easily. If it's something that's very simple, doesn't have a lot of human interface, but does a really cool task, three, four, five, maybe, it's proportional to the number of requirements associated with its finish. If it has 100 requirements, often takes more iteration. It's like a four-dimensional puzzle. Three dimension is the shape and how you get everything into the space that you need. The fourth dimension is, in my opinion, how it's used, how well it performs, what its reliability is, what's its longevity. These are all things that aren't directly in design, but influence it. You mentioned creep. When should someone go, enough is enough? So remember that comment on product requirements document I made? If that can stay pretty solid throughout the program, you've already done your market research, which helps you define when a product is good enough. I've heard before, you guys have studied it here too, it's MVP, minimum viable product. Most cases, if you ask the marketing person to judge what a minimum viable product is, it's about a list of features that's a mile long, as long as you can make it. So if you start to do that, you'll probably never finish because that list is going to evolve. The agreement up front on what that list is for the first release and then pushing anything new into the second, third, and fourth release, I think is the most efficient way to get to market and start making revenue. Most people violate that even though they know it's true. They can't help it. At the very beginning, you talked about all the different companies and that that you work with. One of them was wearables. What's kind of the future for wearables? What's advancements have been made in this area? I'm really curious. There's a lot of advancements in wearables. I went to CES this year, probably the last big show I'll ever go to. Sadly so. I know I'll go to another show someday. I just don't know when. They had a huge department in wearables. Very exciting for me to see. Wearables include everything from alerts for those who need help to body monitoring systems to simple aids for communications. It's a long list. The one that I'm most excited about is augmenting humans so that they don't have to suffer as they often do. The diabetes space is a classic example. If you had diabetes and you watched the life uh, you leave lead or those who have it leads, it's really quite debilitating. Even though you may feel well most of the time, you have to prick your finger five to 10 times a day. You have to watch your glucose levels, make sure you don't eat the wrong foods in a way that's not just weight management, it's true blood sugar management. I think the wearable opportunities are greatest in the space of augmenting humans to be more normal than they were before. 
right? Normal meaning happy, healthy. Don't worry about all the little things in life. Worry about family and journeys and things you like to do in this world. I think wearables have the best opportunities in that space. And there's lots of channels. Can you talk about a few more instances of wearables? Because I got a feeling a lot of our listeners, when they think wearables, I mean, they just think a watch. There are many. And I believe they're all driven by sensor technology. A wearable is typically just a device that captures, I call it remote data. Remote meaning not next to the computer so often. That data can be temperature of your body or the world around you. It can be vibration through acceleration measurement. Um, It can be humidity. It can be shock. It can be lots of things that it measures. And I think the cool thing about that is the sensors are getting cheaper, faster, better. For example, right now you can monitor your glucose level for many days at a time without ever pricking your finger. That's a wearable, a very cool one. You can look on the market and see who's doing that. I think the the best opportunities are in those spaces. I have the watch that you described. I have the Samsung watch and I love it. It gives me all kinds of, you have the Apple watch. I see that. It gives me all kinds of data. At the end of the day, what do I care about when that data comes out? I care about how many steps I did because that's my number one measure of my activity level. How many steps did I do? Oh, I've only got 5,000 steps. Let's go for a walk or go for a bike ride, whatever it is, right? Let's go. I like it for that. It's measuring a whole bunch of things, how well I sleep, monitors that. I think the real opportunity and the cool part of wearables is what you do with the data. That's a big deal. It's one thing to get sensors all over your body, but it's what you do with it. So here's my dream. Five years from now, if I had to guess, I'll get up in the morning. I'll walk down the hall or into the restroom, get ready for my day. My data set will download. Before I finish brushing my teeth, I'll get a few advisory things that are important to me. Mark, your blood glucose levels are low. You should probably have an extra orange today. Or the muscle in your lower left calf is severely strained. You should stretch and ice that thing today so that you don't hurt it further. So these kinds of things are possible. There's elastic sensors that measure motion over time. There's force feedback systems that can augment motion. It's an endless list. It's very exciting. I'm also curious about laws and regulations with all this data. Is there anything that's going to, well, one, stop it from expanding because of regulations law? Is there anything that's going to protect the consumer or should they even be worried? I think they should be worried. If you look at early on, these devices that measure steps, usually watches, but there's others. I heard on many occasions that the error rate is as much as 30 or 40% relative to either steps and or heart rate monitoring. I always like to cross-check, see if the device is there. And the good news is a lot of these devices are ranked or rated by users. Amazon's great at it. Others do it too. If they've got four stars or better, they've got thousands of reviews. Odds are pretty good they've done a good job of dealing with the accuracy of their devices. There's another thing that's very interesting to me. I watch how entrepreneurs approach this world and they pick one of two paths because if a device is a medical device, it has one path that's really expensive and hard to do because you go through the FDA. That's one path. If they pick the more of an advisory consumer path, it's not medical, it's a lot easier path to follow because it's not so stringent. 
And a lot of people try to start with the easier path and then move it into the medical path after they've got some market share. And that's really hard because if you study how medical devices are done, which many wearables are medical devices, there's this design history tracking thing you need to do. So they've avoided all that and tried to do an end around that. Be very careful before you consider a medical device as a non-medical device to start with and then migrate it into being one secondarily. Really, really challenging. There's something called a design history file. We participate in that a lot. As a design crew, we are contributors to the design history file. As an entrepreneur, you would be the owner of that design history file and lots of other regulatory things. So you need a tracking system that's FDA approved and traceable that you follow throughout the program. It's a quality management system, QMS, they often call them. And those are very expensive. They can be upwards of $100,000 to set up. And most entrepreneurs don't walk out the door saying, oh, first thing I'm going to do is set up a QMS program. The first thing they want to do is invent their product, right? And get it to the market. So if this QMS is in the way, it's often a big deterrent. These watches are not often medical devices. If you look at it, they don't claim to be a medical device and they never will. But I think Apple's doing it. They're going to start migrating that way with their new devices. It's going to become critical to performance of your health. And that's when it becomes important. We did one really early on, just a bit of a story. We did a device where it was for measuring your ability to breathe for asthmatics. Basically, you blow into this device and it spins a little impeller. And the little impeller inside the device has a magnet in it. That magnet sweeps across a little coil and counts the number of times per second that that propeller, impeller, I guess it's called a propeller, rotates. That rotation is then aggregated and you, this is back when they had fax machines, by the way, sorry. You plug that into a fax line or a phone line and it uploads to the doctor. So that was a medical device. And the whole point was you would do a measurement. It would know the time, the flow. It would report to your doctor and he or she would look at that data and say, Mark, your breathing is getting worse. You need to come in or here's a prescription. That was an early wearable. You'd keep it in your pocket, you'd take it out, you'd do the breathing test, you'd plug it in later. Now it's instantaneous. It goes up as fast as you take the data. Is there anything else stopping the advancement of wearables in our daily life? I think there are manufacturing limits. Typically, the classic approach to a wearable is you choose what it's going to do. You choose the sensors that do it, choose the battery that goes with it, choose how you're going to charge it, whether it's disposable and reusable or not, that kind of thing. You choose all these things. It typically involves a plastic enclosure, a rubber overmold, buttons, switches, displays, LEDs, all these little parts. Those all take time to invent and integrate. I believe the future is putting all this onto flexible circuitry. I think once that's happening, and it, and it is happening, once that happens, these devices will be part of your clothing, they'll be in your belt, they'll be in your shoe, they'll be wherever you need them, whenever you need them. If they fail, you tear it out like Velcro and you put a new one in and it's off to the races. That is coming. So anytime I look at a wearable, I look at it from how can it be reliable, easy to build, a useful device. The technology and manufacturing is evolving all the time, but the more steps you add, the harder it is to do a wearable. 
You want to reduce the steps. You want to keep it on one machine. That's not very possible right now. But if one machine could do all the work, you wouldn't have to hire a hundred humans to assemble this thing and test it. The machine would build it and spit it out the other end. So raw materials in one end and finished goods in the other. We're very far from that now. Today, what you do is you make the plastic parts at one vendor. You put it in a big box with a million other versions of that plastic part. You ship it to the assembly house along with everybody else shipping their circuit boards, their LEDs, their displays, their batteries. And then somebody sits there and puts it together. That is a huge limiter to wearables. Most products too, but especially wearables because they're almost always small. So I believe the best opportunity out there is for the manufacturers to figure out how to integrate all these sensors into a rapid deployment methodology. And I like some of the companies that are doing it for part fabrication, where you just send them your CAD model, two days later, you get your part. Well, I think the future is you send them your product model and it comes back in a few days. I think that's the future. Now, before this interview, I was doing some research on battery technology. Can you talk about soft batteries, elastic wiring, multi-touch for all the, the advancements that's happening there? The battery world is one that's been very interesting to me and also a huge limiter. If you look at most of these wearables, they have a life of limits in time, typically. My watch has a three and a half day battery life. I have to plug it in at three and a half days. That's really awkward. If you think about it, what do I do at the three and a half day mark? I'd rather have it be three days, two days, or four days, but not three and a half, right? Because in the half day, I'm probably at lunch. I'm not going to put it on the charger in the half day. So batteries are a big deal. They take up the most space in a wearable in most cases. They get hot if they're used heavily and they don't last that long. So battery opportunities are there. When I went to CES earlier this year, I saw some really cool batteries. It's a Japanese company that I'm thinking of at the moment. They had invented flexible batteries. They wouldn't tell me how they did it. If they sell me one, I'll tear it apart, but whatever. That's another story. Just because I'm curious, not because I want to copy it. Anyway, the battery was truly flexible. You could twist it like a pretzel. You could tie it in a knot. You could wrap it around your arm. You could make it a necklace. It could be on your wrist. You could slap it against your wrist. It would wind around your arm. It was amazing. So how they do that, I, I know that it's uh, liquid polymers, typically. And those polymers are arranged in ways that can be flexible. And I've seen the really simple ones, but they had one that was far and above greater than any I've seen. But usually they compartmentalize the batteries into small segments. And they connect them all. And the segments that in between each segment is a flexible zone. And that flexible zone is one that gives it its true bendability. So the battery itself is still rigid, like it's always been. But there are flexible zones and it's broken into lots of little batteries, many small batteries all in a row with a flexible interconnect. That's one way you get flexible batteries. And how does 5G technology play into this? Because the wearables are talking to each other. They're talking to. I think the biggest opportunity in the wearable space is body networks. If you can get batteries that last long enough, and there's other ways to do this too, I can mention later, but. If you can get batteries that last long enough, you can have a body-mounted network. It's ubiquitous. You don't think about anything you're wearing. You just put it on and it's already got the sensing integrated into it, all connected through a 5G network. So it goes to your phone. It can go through other people's devices agnostically, as long as there's security embedded, which is a big deal, by the way. As long as security is maintained, 
5G allows you to communicate in many different ways. There are many different technologies wrapped into one term 5G. I know you've had podcasts about this before, so I won't try to be anywhere near the expert that that gentleman was. To me, it's very exciting to be able to do body-mounted networks. So I think that's a big one. And then what are some of the biggest business opportunities you think in the future? In the wearable space? I think it's my dream I talked about earlier. All night I'm being monitored in a non-intrusive way. And I've given personal feedback on how my body's performing and what I can do to make it better. Elimination of pain or improving sports playing capabilities. I love to play sports. I set my goals. I think wearables has the best opportunity for me to improve my existence along with many others. And I'll give you an example. I've had a shoulder challenge lately and I had an appointment with Kaiser. By the way, I love Kaiser. They're really good. They're hampered like the rest of us are in this virus situation. So I had a physical therapist, a video call with a physical therapist. That's kind of an oxymoron if you think about it. Physical therapy when you're not in physical space with the person. Think about that. Well, I did. The gentleman I dealt with was fantastic. He could tell things by watching and talking, but he couldn't push on a muscle and say, oh, Mark, that muscle's the problem because it's too tight or this one's torn or that bone joint is not working well because you can't hear it or feel it cracking. I think one of the opportunities for wearables and a huge business opportunity because it's medical based now is to make remote appointments far more effective with in-person sensing technologies. It could be augmented reality. It could be far better camera systems. It could be sensors that you'd mount on your wrist, on wristbands that measure acceleration and position. So say, for example, on my shoulder session with this gentleman I've had three so far, he says, okay, Mark, put your elbow down to your hip and rotate your wrist out to the side as far as you can go. And I want to know what that angle is. I'm an engineer, so I'm probably going to take a guess at that. But most people are going to go, I don't know. I can't tell you that. And so it's, it's not fair to ask the patient to give detailed numbers back to a doctor. So I think there's a huge opportunity. I think it's one of the biggest. The more remote we are, the more these sensor games, especially with wearables, are going to play a massive role. The guy or guys who crack that one. Anyone from Kaiser out there, we, we do accept sponsors. So just throwing it out there. <laughs> yeah, they're great. So Mark, with all this advancement in technology, is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you think people out there, entrepreneurs, people, wearable fans might want to know, might be interested in learning? Any stories that you'd like to share? There's two things. One that comes to mind, and a lot of people have trouble doing this, but if you're making a mechanical device, or even if it's electronic, but mostly mechanical, and that's my world so I can speak to it, don't be afraid to fail. Do it really fast. Be honest with yourself. It's really hard because people are very optimistic when they're entrepreneurs. I know, like I said, I'm one of them. You can brush over the fact that your design is going to work or isn't going to work in a way that gets you way down the path. So you waste a lot of money and time if it's not going to work. Be honest with yourself and prove it as quickly as you can. And if you don't know how to prove it, ask a friend who can or someone like us. Just say, come in, say, Mark, I've got this idea. I have no idea if it's going to work. Can you help me build some to try it out? And we do do that, right? We have 3D printers. We can, we can go to Home Depot and buy stuff, tear it up, make something else out of it. And we do it all the time. 
I think that's a big piece of advice. Be honest with yourself. Be able to wear two hats at least. Maybe one is the business hat. Who could take your idea? Does the world really need it? Those kinds of things. And then there's the entrepreneur hat, inventing things. That's the most fun part, by the way. Uh, Invent those things that are that way. And I'll give you an example. One gentleman came in with an exercise device many years ago. Really nice guy. And his job in the daytime was a trainer. And he invented something for the traveling trainer. And I thought it was a great idea. But remember, I'm not supposed to judge it for its marketability. I'm judging it for its feasibility. I advised him, we did, and we advised him to build as many prototypes as he can to prove or disprove his beliefs. And he did. He had a string of like eight or 10 prototypes before he even started working with us. It started us at a position that was way higher than we normally would be able to start. Given the expense of the development that we have to offer, it's the best way to go. So come in with a really solid working solution. In his case, he got a great product at the end. It's, I've got a big picture of it on my wall now. So proud. Anyway, that is the best. And Mark, if anyone wants to find out more information about you or your company, what's the best way to go about doing that? I think the website is the best. I put a bunch of videos on there that help people learn about the development process. It's www.fusiondesigninc.com. Great. We'll have all that information on the show notes. And Mark, I want to thank you again for your time. And for everyone that's listening to the show, Please share amongst your network, pass this knowledge on, listen to this episode a couple of times because, I mean, trust me, you always pick up new things every time you listen and write that review on iTunes to help us get indexed and encourage us to make great more episodes like this in the future. All right, Mark, thank you again for being a guest here on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.